Take your Bible, please, church, and meet me in uh, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 this morning. One of the esteemed values of our day is tolerance. One can hardly go a week without hearing the call for tolerance. We're told to be open-minded, free-thinking, and accepting of all. Objective truth has been replaced by the postmodern mindset that tells us to question everything and believe nothing. This view on tolerance is perhaps perfectly illustrated by a common bumper sticker. I'm sure you've seen it. Where it consists of just this one word, the word coexist, and each letter of the word stands for a world view or world religion. And so the C is the symbol for Islam. The O, or the peace sign, is, is what we might call the symbol for pacifism. The E is a symbol for gender equality or gay rights, depending on whom you ask. The X, or the Star of David, is a symbol for Judaism. The I, with the pentacle and the circle, is a Wiccan symbol. It's, it's really a symbol for paganism. The S is a symbol for Taoism, where you have the yin and the yang. And then the T is a symbol for Christianity, the cross. And the implication is that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you tolerate other beliefs. As far as society is concerned, the unforgivable sin is to stand by certain truths that might possibly offend someone. Can we just admit something together here this morning? It's hard being a follower of Jesus in today's world, isn't it? Living in a culture that continually accuses Christianity of intolerance is hard. Being wrongly labeled as a bigot or a sexist um, or a homophobe or a zealot, that's hard. Being viewed as narrow-minded, small-minded, and intolerant is hard. Much easier to be religious in the, much, in, the, in the most vague sense of the word. Being spiritual is not a problem. Spirituality is in and widely accepted. Other world religions aren't problematic because, after all, their beliefs are just part of their culture. Even general belief in God doesn't rankle the critics, but to profess faith in Jesus Christ and to walk in obedience to Him comes at a cost, doesn't it? As I'm sure you've experienced, the pressure to conform is very real. But it's not new. And in that, there's great comfort and assurance to propel us forward. From its inception, Christianity has faced and overcome the pressure to conform. 
You recall from Acts chapters 2 and 3 how the first Christians were having a positive, transformative effect on the surrounding culture. Followers of Jesus were living their everyday, ordinary lives in ways that affected the world around them. In chapter 3, for example, which we considered last week, a man was miraculously healed because the Apostle Peter was willing to minister in the name of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, however, as we will see today, is the response to chapter 3. If chapter 3 is about living for Jesus, chapter 4 reveals that not everyone appreciates it or takes kindly to it. Because chapter 4 marks the beginning of opposition to the exclusivity of Jesus. And we'll see as the book of Acts unfolds that this opposition intensifies almost chapter by chapter. But opposition to the church has not stopped the church. Jesus promised to build his church, and he has, and he is. Therefore, we can move forward today by faith in Jesus because salvation is in no, no one else. Despite all the resistance, people of, of all ages from all over the world are still being saved to God through Christ alone. So I want to read this with you. We're going to take this first section, this um, largest section of chapter 4. We're going to take that in two parts, and I want to say the first part with you this morning. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So you remember that in Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and John are making their way to the prayer meeting at the temple when they're interrupted and by this uh, beggar asking for alms. He's a crippled man. He cannot walk, and he's been that way since birth. And Peter says to him, um, we have, I have no money. I have no money to give you, but what I have is hope in Christ. And the man is healed. And then, of course, this draws a crowd. Um, Many are coming. Peter and John are now teaching about Jesus. And we pick it up in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. For it was all... They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them, Peter, John, the man, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, 
If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we want to thank you again for this time we have this morning to consider your word to hear your voice, to receive and reflect upon what you would want to say to us this morning that would affect our lives this afternoon and tomorrow and from this day forward. And so for that, we need need the ability to hear your voice and we need hearts that are made ready to receive your truth And so, O Holy Spirit, would you come and descend upon us again this morning in these moments we share and do all the necessary work in each of our lives that we would leave this place different than when we came in. And for this, we will give you praise through Christ our Lord. Amen. Chapter 3 ended with an appeal for faith. With the last sentence of chapter 3, the Apostle Peter told the crowd that God has raised up Jesus Christ to bless those who turn to Him in genuine repentance by renouncing their wicked ways. And as Peter and John were speaking with the people, the Jewish authorities arrived at the scene to shut the whole thing down. Verse 1 of chapter 4 reveals that this contingent consisted of the temple priests, the captain of the temple, who was second in rank to the high priest, and the Sadducees, who were among the privileged Jewish aristocracy who, who often collaborated with the Romans to protect their own political and economic interests. In fact, to some Jews... The Sadducees were traitors who sided with the Romans just to pad their own pockets. And these authorities were agitated and annoyed for two reasons, according to verse 2. First, they were bothered by the fact that Peter and John were teaching the people, which they took as a threat to their leadership. But the content of the apostles' teaching was most bothersome because they were teaching about Jesus. They were teaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And they were teaching how Jesus inaugurated the general resurrection from the dead. And it was already evening, we're told, and thus the Jewish council had basically closed for the day. So the authorities had the apostles arrested until the matter could be uh, deliberated the following morning. But notice the gospel continued in power. Verse 4 says that many who heard Peter and John believed them, and the number of those 
who placed faith in Jesus grew to about 5,000 men, not counting women and children, which suggests that there were probably well over 10,000 Christians by this time in the early days of the church. Church, I just want you to see how opposition to the gospel does, does not stop the spread of it. The Spirit of God was moving. The people of God were ministering. Jesus was building His church, and there was no stopping Him. To this very day, the gospel continues to take ground. Do we believe that this morning? To this very day, the gospel continues to take ground despite the opposition, and in fact, at times, because of opposition. But have you ever noticed how some people just can't handle a good thing? <laughs> They're always critical, always skeptical, always perceiving things as threats to the status quo. The Jewish authorities were, were often like that. When we see them in the New Testament Gospels, they're always finding fault with Jesus. Always. And here again, they take issue with those who are teaching about Jesus. Now hear this. A man had been healed. And the crowd was responding positively to what God was doing while the leaders weren't. They were too busy fault-finding when they could have come to faith themselves. And I think, we, we won't spend time on it this morning, but I think there's a lesson in there for us. Too busy fault-finding when we could be coming to faith ourselves. The next day, the Jewish council gathered to discuss what to do with Peter and John and the growing Christian movement. Annas, the former high priest, so here's what's going on here. Apparently, um, much like U.S. presidents, the high priest retained his title for life. So Annas, the former high priest, and Caiaphas, the current high priest, and John, who history reveals, became the high priest. So you have this succession, the, the former, the current, and the next in line. And then this man, Alexander, of whom we really know nothing about. These four, they are overseeing the proceedings. Now, I can't help but wonder what Annas and Caiaphas were thinking at this moment. This is the first we've seen of them since the day of Christ's crucifixion in which they played a significant role. Uh, they likely thought that they'd gotten rid of Jesus for good. They had condemned Jesus to death. They persuaded Pilate to carry out the sentence of death. I'm sure they were present in the crowd when Jesus actually died, and yet here they are having to deal with Jesus all over again. They're hearing about how he rose from the dead and how his followers are so sure of this fact that they're declaring the truth of it without any apparent fear of repercussion. 
They marched Peter and John before the court, and it appears that the man who was healed is there with them also. They didn't ask what happened, notice, or why it happened, or how it happened. What they really want to know is by whose authority it happened. By what power or by what name did you do this, they demand in verse 7. In other words, we never authorized this, and you're out of line. Now, you've got to love the Apostle Peter in this scene. I mean, Peter's living like a man with nothing to lose. So convinced that Jesus is who he said he is, and so full of the Holy Spirit, Peter provides the facts about exactly what happened and why. Now, I want you to remember... None of this was planned as far as Peter was concerned. And yet here he is, present in the moment, being questioned for some alleged misdeed, trusting the Spirit of God to provide the words to say. And in verses 8 through 12, he preaches Christ. He makes it clear that by the name of Jesus Christ, the man was healed and made well and now standing in plain view of them all. Now again, as just a quick aside, isn't it interesting that some people refuse to believe not for a lack of evidence, but because they deny the evidence that's standing plainly before them. And though they denied and crucified Jesus, these leaders, God raised him up from the dead. Though they rejected Jesus, he in fact became the cornerstone upon which the Christian movement, the church, is built. And this metaphor of the stone and the builders and the cornerstone that Jesus uses here was intentional because it speaks specifically to Israel, which the council certainly would have picked up on. It refers to Psalm 118, and in the original context of that psalm, hear this, the stone was rejected by the Gentile nations, yet chosen by God for the accomplishment of His redemptive purposes. Now, however, Peter is is pointing the finger, saying that the leaders of Israel itself were rejecting God's chosen one. As the builders, they should have recognized Jesus as the cornerstone, but they didn't. And even though they didn't, but even though they didn't, God's redemptive plan remains on track, for there is salvation in no one else, verse 12. There is no other name under heaven given among men and women by which we must be saved. And church, the takeaway here, is that though they were facing immense pressure to back down and conform, much like we are today, Peter and John stood their ground and exalted the name of Jesus. There's application here for us. But first, why should we believe that Jesus is the only way? And how can we possibly proclaim as much 
to a culture that accuses Christianity of being too exclusive and intolerant. Why do we believe that salvation is in no other name? Because the Bible teaches five basic facts about us and God. Fact number one. We are all loved by God, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Fact number two. We have all sinned against God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 Fact number three. We are all separated from God because of our sins. Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you. Fact number four, Jesus therefore died for sins once and for all to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Which means, fact number five, that Jesus is the only way to restored relationship with God. Once he said, at one time he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Though loved by God, we are broken by sin and separated from him. But God has provided a Savior who died once for all, Therefore, Jesus is the only way. We need to remember, church, that Jesus lived in a time like ours where people had different opinions and beliefs. Their beliefs were exclusive to them, and the pressure to conform was real. The idea, follow along with me here, the idea that other religions are inclusive and open-minded while Christianity is narrow and intolerant is false. Every worldview that claims to have truth is exclusive in its belief. That's the nature of such claims. And that's why today's all roads lead to heaven, do what works for you, can't we just coexist mentality is self-defeating. Because every belief system makes certain claims, and when the claims of one disagrees with those of another, the two can no longer coexist in a way that maintains the integrity of each. The varied beliefs in each of these ideologies cannot possibly coexist because the doctrines that make these views what they are are exclusive at their core. What this means is that Christianity gets a bad rap when in fact every other worldview or religious system makes similarly exclusive truth claims. The question then is which one is true and how do we know? 
knowing this, knowing that Jesus, knowing that people were trusting in something false, Jesus came along and said, He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life, which means that He was saying to all of you who believe you've gotten to God or will make it to heaven because you've earned it or found another way, that's simply not true. But the validity of this claim isn't just that Jesus said it. We need to recognize that. It's not just that Jesus said it. It's that he proved it through his life, death, and resurrection. It is historical fact that Jesus lived and that Jesus died by crucifixion unjustly. Secular historians at the time likewise documented his resurrection, and to this day, no one's been able to disprove it, though many have tried. Add to this the hundreds of years' worth of prophecy that preceded these historical events, and all of them found perfect fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. Furthermore, Christianity broke out when it should have been snuffed out. It broke out and spread across the known world because people who were alive at the time actually saw and spoke with the resurrected Jesus. Then they told others what they saw and heard. As in this passage and throughout the book of Acts, his resurrection changed the entire course of human history because that's the day when Jesus brought new life and a new way to live. When he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, church, He's not pushing some dogmatic agenda. He's not blowing some philosophical smoke. He's not waxing poetic. He's saying, listen, listen, all you who believe that this or that will get you to heaven, all of you believe that when in fact it's not true. It won't get you to heaven, but I will. I will because I have been sent from God. And oh, by the way, I am God. Jesus is the way. Think of it like GPS. Or if you prefer the days before GPS, think of it like reading a road map. The Thomas Brothers. The square, the grids, right? The C and the F and your... Just as a map tells you how to get from point A to point B, Jesus is telling us, telling the world, how to get from our current position, which is sin and separation from God, to the desired destination, which is a fully restored and healthy relationship with God. He's saying if you want to go from here to here, you need to follow the way. And I know the way because I am the way. He is the truth. Not one truth among many, but the one in whom all truth is found, or as we read in Colossians 2, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
He reveals the truth of God, for He's of the same divine nature as God, and He reveals the truth about us, about humanity, about our human condition, because He took on our nature, though He never sinned. And therefore, He is the life. He is the life because in His life, we have the only, the one and only example of a perfect life. A life lived in perfect harmony with God. He is the life because He freely gave His life. He came to us, lived among us, died for us. All that stood between you and your Maker, all your failure, all your rebellion, all your ignorance, all your willful disobedience, it was all laid upon Him. He paid all your debt so that you can stand before God without condemnation and with full acceptance and assurance. Hallelujah. The great chasm that exists between us and our sins and God who is without sin was crossed at the cross. Jesus' life, because He gave His life and took it up again to grant forgiveness of sin and new life in God to anyone and everyone who placed their trust in Him and in Him alone. That's why He says, with full authority, no one comes to the Father except through Me. No one could ever do what Jesus has done for you. Why look elsewhere when there's, a, when there's salvation and no one else? These are the things that we want to share with those in our lives. Why look elsewhere when salvation is found nowhere else? Is there any other name by which you can be saved? Can Buddha save? Or Muhammad? No, they've died and they remain in the grave to this day. Is there another who can restore to God a soul that's been utterly corrupted and broken by sin? Can you save yourself? Even secular thinkers admit that our human need is so great that the answer is to be found in something beyond ourselves. Jesus made certain claims that are exclusive to Him. Yes, absolutely He did. But hear this, He Himself is not exclusive. The church, Christianity, Christianity itself is not exclusive because the way of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, and the life of Jesus is open to any and all. You don't have to be from a certain race or follow a certain set of rules. You don't have to live in a certain part of the world or exclude those who live elsewhere. You don't have to offer sacrifice repeatedly in the attempt to appease some upset deity or an all-seeing eye. All you must do is accept Jesus for who He is, which means to trust Him, to follow Him, and to live according to His claims. As followers of Jesus, church, why are we here? Why are we here today? Why are we here in this place at this time for this church service? Why do we order our lives as we do? Why do we worship as we do? 
Why do we pray as we do? Why do we give our hard-earned money as we do? Why do we serve and minister as we do? Why do we think about worldwide missions and local outreach as we do? Why do we promote evangelism and, and church uh, uh, evangelism and uh, disciple-making as we do? Why do we talk about being a community for the cause of Christ? Why do we put up with all this crud that the world throws our way? Because salvation is in no one else. Salvation is found in no other name. Now I want to be sure before we close. I've actually been thinking about this for a few weeks and I I just want to take the time to share it this morning. I want to be sure to address the person who may be here today who has yet to receive this gift of salvation. And then those of you who already have received this gift, I, I want this to be an encouragement to you as well in your conversations with those who haven't. Because I think it's important that we articulate this that saving faith in Jesus does not require full understanding of everything about Jesus. It begins simply by deciding to turn from going your way, from your sins, to going His way instead. That's repentance. And once you take that first step, you learn as you go. You crawl, you walk, you run. There's a progression to it. I have a friend who was telling me recently, I love this story, about a woman she's discipling. And this woman is brand new in the Lord. Doesn't know anything It was an entirely clean slate. She didn't know about the Bible. She didn't know the table of contents and how to read the table of contents. She she didn't know, she didn't understand these these larger bold letters we have in our Bible and then the tiny little uh, numbers, the larger bold numbers and the, the chapter and verse numbers. She had no clue what all of that meant. It was all new to her. It was a new beginning. What she knew was that she needed Jesus and she received him and took hold of him. And now she's being discipled. And she's learning as she goes. And I just want to echo that that's perfectly okay. In fact, that's what a life with Jesus entails. It's just one new beginning after another. So please don't let your lack of full understanding keep you from what you do understand. That you are loved by God, that you have turned from God, that your sins separate you from God, that Jesus died and rose to bring you to God, and that there is no other name by which you can be saved. So call upon Christ.
Confess your need for him. Open your life to him. And let him take it from there. It's hard to be a Christian today. But from its inception, Christianity has faced and overcome opposition. So we can move forward, church. We can move forward by faith in Jesus because salvation is found nowhere else. Amen. Amen. Father, we want to thank you We do just admit and acknowledge that um, that the prevalent pluralism in our day where we're being told, repeatedly being told that it really doesn't matter what you believe, just, just as long as you don't offend. I pray that you would help us as followers of Jesus to stand by the truth of your word, to stand in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and to preach the, essentially the ex- exclusivity of Jesus Christ and salvation in his name alone. Give us courage in our faith, even as we see here with Peter and John, to be able to do that um, when the pressure to conform is, is intensifying. In each of our lives, I imagine there are, there are opportunities we have to, to speak the name of Jesus, and there are times when we've backed down or shied away, and I pray you just forgive us of our timidity and rather would you lead us Lord to walk through those doors as you bring those opportunities our way and so we just bless you we thank you we thank you for your blessing upon us and we need it more and more so come O Spirit come and fill your people Amen Amen